This morning, I want you to turn to Psalm 3. We've just begun the Psalms. And um, I'd like to tie in Psalm 3 and Psalm 7 this morning. So let's look again at Psalm 3, again, where Pastor Lane was reading. A Psalm of David when he was fleeing from Absalom. Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. And many are those who rise up against me. Many are they who say to me, there's no help for him in God, Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill, Selah. I lay down and I slept. I woke, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people, Selah. As you look at Psalm 3, um, we talked about the different types of psalms last week in an introduction. Psalm 1 is really basic description of two different kinds of people. Um, those who seek the Lord, verses 1 through 3. And then, of course, uh, the ungodly who do not. Uh, the repercussions for those who seek the Lord, whatever they do will prosper. The Lord will be with them, guide them, direct their steps. Opposite is true of the ungodly. They'll have to stand in the judgment, we're told. And um, they will eventually perish, Psalm 1. And then we really switch gears big time. <laughs> and we only get to Psalm 2, and already we're talking about the Battle of Armageddon. We tied it into Isaiah chapter 63, Revelation 19, the second coming. And um, the futility and the irony of uh, the kings of the world thinking they're actually going to go to battle against the creator of the entire universe. So it's, what an exercise in futility. If we read here, he who sits in heaven will laugh and hold him in derision. Foolishness. And so here we have prophecy. And we mentioned that one of the... Uh, Divisions of the Psalms is that they are messianic. Psalm 22 is a great one. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, they look on me who they have pierced. Long before uh, crucifixion was ever even developed by the Romans. That brings us to Psalm 3. And if you're here on Wednesday night, we went chapter by chapter and verse by verse. 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. And what I hadn't seen before and and this is our fourth time through the Bible now, I never connected Psalm 3 and 7. I never saw the connection until this time through. But as you look at Psalm 3 uh, this morning, uh, the first couple of verses, what we have in view here is what David is going through emotionally from an experience that he had when he was running from his son Absalom. And uh, we have the narrative back in Second uh, Samuel, and I'll be walking you through that in just a moment. But what's so important about the Psalms is David is telling us what's going on inside of here um, as this event was unfolding. So verse 1 and 2, when you read this, I want to put, have you put in mind a rebellious son whose name is synonymous with Judas being a traitor, well, an Absalom would be one who would rise up against you and try to take something that doesn't belong to him. 
in this case, his father's throne. So he's talking about that in verse 1. Lord, how have they increased who trouble me? And many are those who rise up against me. Uh, Many are they who say of me, there's no help for him in God. Selah. This is speaking of uh, Absalom and his men. Hold your finger here because at this point I'm also going to tie in um, Psalm 7. And I'm going to have you turn there quickly. And I don't know if your Bible is like mine, but uh, this is a meditation underneath Psalm 7, which is a meditation of David. When he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. Now, this is sort of an oxymoron, and I'll explain that later. Cush, a Benjaminite. But what we have here, you're going to find out, is a person who is also related during this same time frame as Absalom was coming into town and David is running from town, he runs into this man here whose name is Shimei. He's a Benjaminite. And David is going to write about him. And um, I'll come back and we'll read Psalm 7, but just so that you can have some sort of a feel where we're headed this morning, how David is going to deal with this, let's turn um, uh, back to Psalm Three, just well, yeah. Let's turn it back to Psalm three, just for a second. As you look at verse oh, five and six, when we read the Psalms, I mean, we, we're, <laughs> we are really running the emotional gamut or spectrum from unbelievable peace and tranquility to the other extreme great trouble of the soul and mind. As you look at five and six, here David's on the run. I've entitled this message this morning, On the Run. But even though he's on the run, we read in five and six, he says, I'm going to lay down, I'm going to sleep. I awoke for the Lord sustained me. I'm not going to be afraid, though, 10,000. Now, Absalom has a lot of people, so much so that David is on the run. So there's many who have come against him. But in the midst of the storm, there's this peace that David is experiencing because he really believes his God is able to sustain him no matter what he's going through. Uh, If you look at Psalm 4, verse 7 and 8, it reminds me of Psalm 23. It says, You have put gladness in my heart more than in the seasons that their grain and have increased. I'm going to lie down in peace. I'm going to sleep, for you, O Lord, make me lie down in safety. That reminds me of Psalm 23. The Lord's my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me what? Lie down in green pastures. I mean, talk about laid back and and relaxed and totally at peace with the situation. Now, having said that, we go from that to Psalm 6, and um, here we spent quite a bit of time on Wednesday evening. And I like this part of it because this is reality gain. This is the real Christian life when you have the dark night of the soul, when you're questioning everything, when your soul is deeply troubled. And so we find in Psalm 6, verse 6 and 7, this is the same writer, this is the same guy. I am weary with my groanings. All night I have made my bed swim. I drenched my couch with my tears, my eyes Wasted away because of grief, 
It grows old because of all my enemies. This is the same guy, only he's going through a, a deep troubling. He, said his, he says, my soul is deeply troubled. In verse three, my soul is also greatly troubled. We bounced off from this on Wednesday and we went to the New Testament. You know, the word tells us that God anointed our Lord Jesus with the oil of gladness. Wherever he was, he was the Prince of Peace. But in Gethsemane, he said, my soul is greatly, greatly stressed to the point where he sweat blood. That's what we're told. Gethsemane is interesting. It means olive press. And that's what was happening to Jesus uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was greatly troubled. It's important for us to know this because in the human range of our emotion, we're going <laughs> to be on both sides of that camp. So you want to give me an amen on that? I mean, there's going to be days where you're going, hallelujah, jumping around the house, and, and uh, everything's, you know, peachy keen. And then there are going to be days, am I saved? Oh, man, if you knew what I was going through right now. And it's important for us to understand that because it was true for the apostles, uh, as Jim alluded to just briefly this morning, the weakness, the human frailties. We talked about Paul that the Lord had to appear to him personally to encourage him. I mean, that's how down Paul was. And yet his whole goal was to go around and build up everybody else. But he was so down one time uh, that the Lord, he said, Lord, Paul, don't worry about it. He said, first of all, you're going to have to witness to the emperor of the whole world, so you're not going to die yet, so chin up. So as we get into the Psalms and what we're looking at this morning and where we're going this morning I'll quote J. Vernon McGee here where he says, Psalm 3 tells us what went on in the heart of David when he had to flee from Jerusalem when Absalom, his son, rebelled against him. This psalm came out of the personal experience of David. He was in a difficult situation. He had become an outcast and a fugitive from his own city, Jerusalem, which he called the city of David. He had been driven from the people that he ruled, and Absalom, his son, was in rebellion against him and actually wanting to take his own dad's life. With that, let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 13 this morning. And I'm not going to take it for granted that you know David's kids, Absalom in particular. So let me just do a little background on him. Talk about potential. Kid's son, uh, uh, son of the king. He was a son of King David. Um, he had a sister whose name was Tamar and had a half-brother whose name was Ammon. Now, Ammon really fell for Tamar. I mean, it says he loved her more than you can possibly imagine. Long story short, he ended up raping Absalom's Sister Tamar, Ammon did. And uh, she's distraught. She runs to her brother Absalom. He takes her in. And, um, and he sits on it for a couple years. Absalom does. Doesn't do anything. He's biding his time, waiting for his opportunity. And when the opportunity arose, he talks to his dad about having a sacrifice and he wants it to be a family affair, get everybody together. And he says, yeah, I'd kind of like to have Ammon come along too. So the plot has been laid. And when he had the opportunity, it was Absalom's men who took out Ammon. 
Well, as a result of this, in 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 37, let's pick it up there, he's now killed his brother because his brother raped his sister. And Ammon fled, Absalom fled, verse 37, and went to Telma, the son of Amalud, the king of Gersher. And David mourned for his son every day. He really loved Absalom. And Absalom fled and went to Gersher, and he was there for now three full years. So this is a, a total of five years from the time um, that this had happened. And the king longed to go to Absalom, for he had been comforted now concerning Ammon. Some time had went by. He got over Ammon's death, but he really loved this particular son, Absalom, very, very much. Next chapter tells us that he, with a little help from Joab, putting a gal up to put a hypothetical situation before King David, sort of trapped him into bringing Absalom home. And if you want to read that story, how Joab pulled that off, that would be a, a chapter 14 here. Uh, but eventually he does return, uh, but David won't see him. So he comes, Absalom returns to his own house, but King David won't allow him to see him. And this really got to Absalom. He's home, but he can't see dad. So just try to put yourself in that situation. He couldn't get anybody's attention, so he gets some, uh, he sets Joab's uh, field on fire, and that got his attention. <laughs> And as he went over there, he says, you brought me home? Come on, let me see Dad. And again, long story short, he is reunited finally uh, with him. But just a little background about Absalom. If you look at chapter 14, verse 25, it tells us here, now in all of Israel, there was no one that was praised so much as Absalom for his good looks. I mean, we're talking about the best-looking guy in all of Israel. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut his hair at the end of every year, because it was heavy, uh, he weighed the hair, and it was 200 shekels according to the king's standards. I mean, five pounds of hair. (laughs) So these verses give us an outward you know, description of who this guy was. In verses, in chapter 15, now let's look at his inward characteristics. We read in uh, chapter 15, well, let's look at verse 33. We see the reunion. So Joab went to the king and told him, and when he had called for Absalom, he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and then the king kissed Absalom. So they're reunited. But a root of bitterness and jealousy has been growing over these last several years. And it's about to manifest itself in chapter 15. For we're told here that it happened when Absalom provided for himself chariots and horsemen, 50 men going before him. Absalom would rise up early and stand by the way of the gate. And so it was when Everyone or anybody who had a lawsuit would come to the king for decisions or judgment. There was probably a big line in the morning. Well, Ammon would call to the guy and say, uh, hey, where are you from? What city are you from? 
And he would say, well, I'm from such and such a town. I live in the city over there. And then Absalom would say, look, you seem like a decent fella. It looks like you have a good case. Um, too bad there's nobody around that can, can hear your complaint. Uh, moreover, verse 4, Absalom would say, oh, if I were made judge in the land and if anybody had a problem uh, or a, a case or a cause, if they would come to me, uh, I would uh, give him justice. Just flash for a moment. Well, we're in that season, aren't we, where we're having the commercials for people who are running for office and uh, they're countering these ads going back and forth. He's just being a politician right now. You know, vote for me, man. And, and uh, whatever your problem is, I'm going to take care of it. And so it was whenever anybody came to him to bow down to him that he would put out his hand and give him a kiss. And there he's kissing babies too, I suppose. <laughs> In this manner, Absalom acted toward all of Israel who came to the king for judgment so Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. So this goes on. And verse 7, this is one of those grammatical errors. It's a typo. That's all it really is because it says it came past after 40, it's 4. And that's just a typo that they have. Um, a, lot of, a lot has been made out of it, but it's, of course it couldn't be 40 years. That Absalom said to the king... Please let me go to Hebron to pay my vow, which I vowed to the Lord. I want to make sacrifices. The Lord's brought me home. And he said, go, the king says, go in peace. And so he goes there, but he's planning treason. And he's surrounding his forces, horses, his sources. His sources could have had horses. <laughs> but as he's gathering his enemies together, um, it sort of summed up in verse 12 that he's in Hebron. David's totally blindsided by what's about to hit him. He doesn't see it coming. It just tells us, then Absalom sent for Ahipothel. Now this was one of the wisest counselors that David had in his cabinet. And he goes and he joins Absalom, David's counselor for his city, namely from Gilho, when he offered sacrifice. And the conspiracy grew strong for the people with Absalom continued to increase in number. And that brings us to the flight where David finally hears what's happening. Well, there's been rumors. I mean, the buzz was out there, but all of a sudden, here comes Absalom. And he has a hippothel. David feared this guy because of the wisdom. He says he's got the, like the wisdom of God. And David was so distraught in this, now keep in mind, this is Psalm 3. What David is going through eternally comes out in Psalm 3. I'm giving you the narrative. Now David is on the run, and that's why I've entitled this this morning, on the run from his own son. So in chapter 15, David takes flight. In verse 13, the messenger came to David saying, David, all the, the men of Israel, their hearts... There was Absalom, not you. And so David said to his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, let's get out of here. Let's escape from Absalom. Make haste to depart, lest he overtakes us and suddenly brings disaster upon us and strikes the city with the edge of the sword. Verse 14. 
And the king's servants said to the king, well, we're your servants. We're ready to do whatever my lord the king wants. And the king went out with his household with him. But the king left ten women, concubines, to stay behind just to keep the house. And they went out with the people after him and stopped at the outskirts. Hopefully we get to go to Israel. We'll see how things simmer down or don't simmer down in October. But I know this route. I know it well. Going down from the east side of the city of Jerusalem, from the Temple Mount, he passes over, it says, the the Kidron. And he's making his way up out over, once you get over the Mount of Olives. Well, that's wilderness. And this is where David is heading. He's headed out of town. He is on the run. And all of a sudden, um, I don't want to spend too much time with Ittai the Gittite, but he is one of the, he is the top, one of the top three of David's mighty men. And the exploits of David's mighty men, there's whole, there's whole chapters written about him. Well, he shows up, and he's not a Jew. He's not a Hebrew. He's not one of the tribes. He's a Gittite. And um, David tells him to take, take off. He just got there yesterday, and he says, go back. He says, how can I do that? You're my king. Where you go, I'm going. And so he went, verse 23, uh, they wept with a loud voice when they crossed over, and the king himself over the brook Kidron. So there, that is the valley that lies between the Mount of Olives and the Temple Mount. And you have to cross over that. It's a stream. And they crossed over the Kidron, and the people crossed over towards the way of the wilderness. David's headed out of town, and he is on the run. And um, we have this flight taking place here from Absalom. Now, before we go any farther, there's tears. David doesn't even have his shoes on. And he is on the run, and everybody's grieving, mourning also. As we make our way through the Bible, Psalm 3 is David taking this trial that he's going through, and he writes about it. And um, before we go any farther, we need to add uh, Psalm 7 to the equation. It's interesting how the Holy Spirit dovetails the Bible together. And uh, I love it when... When I discover something I've never seen before, I'm reading it many times, I've never saw this till this time through. Now, keep your finger here, but I want you to turn now to Psalm 7. And Psalm 7 is what we're going to be reading next. Psalm 7, we're told, is about a Benjaminite, the words of Cush. So, what we have here in view, I'll tell you his name is Shimei. And as David now is going to write Psalm 7, which ties into Psalm 3, um, I want to just read verse 1 and 2 because who he's writing about is the guy he's about to run into. So let's read um, 1 and 2. He says, O Lord, in you I put my trust, and I want you to save me from those who persecute me. And I want you to deliver me because... They tear at me like a lion. They render in pieces where there, there's none to deliver. And um, he's talking about being gnawed at and clawed at. What he's got in mind here is what's going to happen to him next. Now, Cush, 
of a Benjamite is only mentioned one time in the, in the scriptures. It happens to be here in Psalm 7. And um, uh, 3 through 5, David prays about his own situation, about this man. Oh God, if I have done this, if there's iniquity in my hands, if I have repaid evil to him who, who is at peace with me, if I have plundered my enemies without a cause, uh, in other words, David is saying, I'm in a big trouble, but what did I do wrong? You know, uh, this guy's going to be a Benjaminite. We're going to find out later he's actually the cousin of Saul. So this guy, Shimei, is going to be taking it out on David shortly. And uh, David is saying, you know, this guy, Saul, he tried to kill me, and I had the opportunity to kill him twice. And he said, I didn't do that. So verses three, four, five here, I'm innocent of these things. You know, I shouldn't be getting cursed out by this guy, Shimei. And um, now we can go back to our story back in chapter 16. And let's, as they're leaving town, let's pick it up in verse five. So 2 Samuel 16, verse five. Now, King David came to Bahiram, and there was a man from the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. Coming from there, he came out, and he was cursing continually as he came. He begins to throw stones at David and the servants of King David, and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand or on his left. So David has his... He's got his armor guard with him. And here's this guy coming out, ranting and raving, cursing him out, throwing stones. Verse 7, and and Shimei said thus, when he cursed, he says, come out, come out, you bloodthirsty man, you rogue. So he's full of slander, and he's just laying it into David. He says, the Lord has brought you, has brought upon you all the blood of the house of Saul. He was blaming David for Saul's death on Mount Gilboa. But the fact of the matter is he spared Saul's life twice when he could have taken it. This isn't true. But yet the slander and accusations are there. And so he goes on to say, Saul, in whose place you have reigned, and the Lord has delivered the kingdoms into the hand of Absalom, your son, so now you're caught in your own evil because you're a bloodthirsty man. Well, David has loyal friends right beside him. One of them, this guy's name is Abishai. He's in verse nine. And he's about had it right up to here with Shimei. He's taken about as enough. This is my king you're talking about, buddy. And so he says in verse nine, he says, David, tell you what, why should this, why should this dead dog curse the Lord my king? He says, let me go over there. I'll make it quick. I'll just take it. Just like that, you'll have no more head, no more problem. Just like that. That was, that was Abishai. And uh, instead, and heads could have rolled, David said, yeah, get rid of him, take him out. He doesn't do it. Instead, we read in verse 10, um, the king says, what have I to do with you, son of Zariah? So let him curse because maybe the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? 
And David said to Abishai and and to all his servants, See now, uh, my son who came from my own body wants to take my life. How much more may this Benjaminite? Leave him alone. Let him curse. For maybe the Lord has ordered it. And he completely cuts the situation loose. And he completely gives it to the Lord. And here's what he's thinking in verse 12. It may be that the Lord will look on my affliction and that the Lord will repay me with good for the cursing that I'm taking this day. Well, as we look at chapter 16, um, 5 through 18, you know what is really happening here? And as I thought about it, I changed this message twice yesterday as I'm just thinking it through. And um, to make it personal to you, just put yourself in the last time you were in a situation you were provoked. For me, that's easy to to remember. I was on Highway 41, and some guy caught me off. And I retaliated. I was provoked. Well, I pulled up next to that guy, and I looked right at him. And he looked right back at me, and I sped up. And he sped up. And there was a little provocation going on here. And who's going to blink first, me or him? I know that's never happened to any of you. But it happened to me. And it's easy to get ticked. It's easy to get provoked. It happens to us all. This guy was provoking David. He's got all these heavy weights on both sides of him. He could have ended it right there and then. But instead, we have Psalm 3. And he takes it and he actually gives that situation. He says, Lord, this is what I was going through. He could have called on Abishai. He had the resources. Could have taken the guy right out. Would have been over. No more Shimei. We'll talk about Shimei before we close this morning. But provocation was being made. Here David is provoked by Shimei. He's even talked about in Psalm 7 as he's giving him to the Lord and says, well, let me curse on. Maybe maybe God's going to do something down the road if I back off on him. He could have had this guy, but he leaves him alone, let him curse. But there was definitely provocation that was going on here. I took out my phone yesterday and I said, Siri, who wrote Turn, Turn, Turn? I knew it was either Dylan, Pete Seeger, or Peter, Paul, and Mary. Who knows? Pete Seeger. (laughs) But he really didn't write it. You know who wrote it? King David's son Solomon from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. To everything there's a time and a season under heaven. I'm just going to quote verse 7 right now and tie it into our message this morning. You know, there is a time to rend and there is a time to sow. There's a time to keep silent and there's also a time to speak. As we look at David here, he didn't get into, he wasn't drawn in when he was provoked. He let it go. And he says, maybe I deserve this cursing. I don't know. But I'm going to give it to the Lord, and maybe the Lord will return good someday for me. Well, there is a time to speak, and there is a time to show action. Shimei's head could have rolled when he was provoked. But David was under God's judgment at this time, and this needs to be a part of the story this morning. Nathan the prophet 
prophesied after David's adulterous affair with Bathsheba. And he says, your sin's forgiven, David, because you repented. Unfortunately, there's gonna be consequences. The sword's not gonna depart from your house. Matter of fact, your very wives and concubines, what you did in secret, David, with Bathsheba, I'm gonna let all of Israel see on the top of your house. That's exactly what Absalom did. Ahipothel gave him counsel. You want to be king? There's ten, ver- there's ten of D- David's wives up on the top of the house. You go into them, and you'll be making a statement. So that was, that was a counsel that was there. So David's thinking, I'm going to let this one go. This is a time not to speak. This is a time not to have heads roll. But on the other hand, there is a time to speak, and there is a time for heads to roll. And I, we actually have a picture of that in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Let's just turn back there quickly because everybody here knows the story extremely well. This guy named Goliath from Gath. In chapter 17, verse 42, I love visiting this place so we go to Israel because you can actually see who was on what mountainside and who was on the other mountainside, and the Bible really comes to life. Well, I think it was 40 days. Goliath goes out every single day, and he provokes Israel, and nobody responds. One day, Jesse, David's father, sent him to deliver some cheese and bread to the the boys and the family, and he got an ear, and he saw Goliath for the first time, and he says, what's this? What is that uncircumcised Philistine doing cursing our God? And David is provoked by Goliath because he was cursing the God of Israel. And he's looking around, Saul. (laughs) Saul? (laughs) You know, guys? Somebody? Who's going to take this guy out? You going to let him do that? All right, there's a time to speak. There's a time not to speak. There's a time heads should roll. And there's a time heads should not roll. In this case, David spoke. He went to the king and says, let me at him. And so, here we have David. Let's pick it up at verse 42. I take you here because heads are going to roll this time, and there is a time to take action. So in verse 40, oh, 42, when, when Goliath looked at David, he disdained him, for he was just a kid, ruddy and good-looking. And so the Philistines said to David, am I a dog? that you come to me with a stick, and the Philistine cursed David. So there's more provocation. And the Philistine said to David, come to me, and I'm going to give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And David said to the Philistine, you come to me with that sword, with that spear, that javelin. I'm going to come to you the name of the God and the Lord God of hosts, the God of the armies of heaven, in whom name you had defiled. Buddy, you are history. And this day the Lord will deliver me into your, my hand and I'm gonna strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcass of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. You see, there's a time to stand up and say so. There's a, a time to, to stand up when um, maybe some of our rights are being challenged. There's a time to be silent, but there's also a time to speak. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? Let's see if we can make it a little more 
up to date with what's going on. Goliath was um, from Gath. He was a Philistine. The Philistines were the enemies of Israel 3,000 years ago. And uh, now, here we are 3,000 years later, and I'm going to put a a map up on the screen at this time, and I want to show you where this battle took place and where these guys are from, where the Philistines lived. The first one is the one of Israel in, um, as it would have been laid out in the times of David. The Philistines had five cities. They were, um, let's start in the north with Ekron, go down to Ashdad. Goliath was from Gath. Then there's Ashkelon. And then the last one is the one I want to draw your attention to. It's called Gaza. That was the boundaries then of the land of the Philistines. Let me show you the map of Gaza today. That's what it looks like today. What's happening, my friends, and as I do a little sidetrack, I never do sidetracks in my Bible studies, but I'm going to do one this morning. As we get a little sidetracked, here we are 3,000 years later. And what do we have? We have provocation. Israel had nothing to do with starting this war. We turned it over to them nine years ago. It was prosperous. It was beautiful. It was producing. And after we left, shortly thereafter, they voted as a democracy to bring in for their government Hamas. We've given them millions and millions of dollars, and now we're finding out that all that money went into concrete to build tunnels underground. And all of a sudden, just within the last couple of weeks, there's been provocation. We didn't start nothing. They started lobbing rockets from the Gaza Strip into areas like Ashkelon, which is, that would be Israeli, Ashdod up, over Tel Aviv where there's uh, nuclear reactors, um, even as far as Jerusalem, which is the first time air sirens ever went off in Israel. And what we see unfolding right now, I couldn't help but keep us on the cutting edge of where we are in time. And it seems like even after 3,000 years, we got the same situation taking place with people who hate Israel and want to take Israel out. And have no doubt about it, there's nothing political about this war. This is a spiritual battle that's going on. It's between Lucifer and his horses and the Lord God of heaven who is setting the stage for his second coming. And everything that we see happening right now, exponentially quick, the stage is being so set that we're in a war like we've, it's been different from these other wars. Talked to Elijah Abraham this week because we want to bring him in for our prophecy conference this fall. Man, he's from Baghdad. The more I talk to him, uh, his insights into what's taking place right now. I said, Elijah, you were raised in Baghdad. What, what do you think about ISIS? You think they'll get their caliphate state? He says, Dwight, <laughs> it's over. It's a foregone conclusion. They have it. It's going to happen. It's happening. Four million girls this week because of ISIS are going to be circumcised. That might be a little bit too much information on a Sunday morning. But that's the brutality of these people. In Mosul, the city where Christians are, you've got one or two choices right now. 
You can either convert to, to Islam or you lose your head, and there's no in-between in this. We are sort of don't get it over here because we live in a very secure, at least for right now, <laughs> very secure where I can get up here and preach away and um, share the gospel freely with you. But don't think that ISIS is not in America. They are. And uh, where our borders are so porous in the south, uh, everybody's uncle is, is here. And um, I, I don't want to get too sidetracked with this, but what we see unfolding right now, after 3,000 years, the same strip of territory is where Goliath came from. And there's a time, in Ecclesiastes again, there's a time to rend and a time to sow, a time to keep silent and a time to speak, Time to love, a time to hate, a time of war, and a time of peace. There's times in our lives when we are provoked. Right now, Israel has been provoked. They did not start this, but they will do everything they can um, to clean out these tunnels. But it's another piece of the puzzle that's coming together that's setting the stage for Ezekiel 38. I mean, I looked at my wife the other night when I was listening, and all of a sudden, there's Putin. And uh, he said, um, right after this plane goes down, well, as you know, even since this morning, there's rockets going in from Russia, and they're involved in taking over uh, um, Ukraine again. And, uh, but then he said this, and my jaw dropped. He says, I'm going to make myself available for a peace treaty to help in the situation between Israel and their enemies, and my jaw dropped. I don't say wow too much too often, but there was a couple wows that went off all at the same time. I said wow, wow, wow. And, um, but unless you know the scriptures and the implications of Ezekiel 38, we got Gog and Magog coming into the Middle East. I was talking to David Hawking about this yesterday. He says, Dwight, they're getting their foot in the door. I said, David, it sounds to me more like a hook in the, in the jaw. And that's the terminology of Ezekiel 38. The Lord is going to put a hook into Putin's mouth. And this is what's happening, gang, right now. And he's going to draw them in to this situation. And uh, this thing is going to get more heated up and more heated up, and we're watching it unfold. And I wouldn't be doing a job as our pastors were making our way through the Bible without saying this is nothing new. The enemies of Israel have always been there. It's Lucifer's number one um, threat is Israel and the Jewish people, and he's dedicated to try to take them out, uh, the great enemy. But you know who's the bigger enemy? You and I, America. We're the big Satan. They're just a little Satan. So if you think that we're immune from this, what you're watching now is, especially in Iraq, if you're a Christian, one or two choices. And don't think they can't make waves here. All right, I've given my two cents worth prophetically what I see taking place. And um, at this time, I want to get back and begin to close things up, maybe with uh, more of a personal note of dealing with people when you're personally provoked. And um, I ran across this. I actually Googled it. Because I was confused with Cush being a Benjaminite. That didn't make sense to me. And what I ran across, I'm going to read to you, is an article. And this person just nails Psalm 7. And I'm I'm just going to read it, and I'll give credit where credit is due. This is not mine. 
how to deal with a cush in your life. And what we have here is, is Shimei. We all have a cush in our lives. Even David did. He wrote Psalm 7 regarding the words of, of cush. What is a cush? A cush is a person, usually a relative or a close friend, who should be on our side, should be supportive, but instead of being for us, they have turned against us. Cush turned, turns against us because Cush feels we have done him or her wrong in some way. Cush blames us for some preconceived uh, injustice they have suffered for which we are innocent. We know the relative of which I am speaking, the relative that blames you for everything wrong in their life, blames you for uh, them missing an opportunity or they're jealous of your success. Cush falsely blames you to your face behind your back and does everything he or she can to undermine and even to destroy you. The name Cush, the Benjaminite, is the title of Psalm 7, is an oxymoron. Everybody here know what an oxymoron is? Um, Jumbo shrimp, okay? That's an oxymoron. Uh, Maybe military intelligence, Microsoft works. You know, the list could go on and on and on and on. Just, you know, just make them up as you go. It's an oxymoron. They sort of cancel each other out. That's what troubled me, and that's why I Googled the article. What do you mean, Cush Benjamin? That doesn't make any sense. Well, and this person hits it on the head, is an oxymoron. It's a contradiction, a contradictory name revealing the contradiction in the character of a Cush. A Cush would have been a Cushite, an enemy of the Israelis. The Benjaminites are Israelites. The Cush referred to in Daniel 7 is actually Shimei, King Saul's cousins. We find the details of the events that inspired David to write Psalm 7 in 2 Samuel 16. David is running from his son Absalom, who has taken the throne of Israel by deception, now wants to kill his own father. David and those who fled Jerusalem with him are traveling on foot. They're tired, they're weary, they're hungry, thirsty. And they come near Shimei, the Benjaminite's house, who is a relative of David's and those with him. Instead of Shimei offering food and drink and lodging to David and the others, Shimei comes out of his house and begins cursing David, falsely accusing him, calling him names, throwing rocks and dirt at him. Why was Shimei so angry with David? 2 Samuel 16, verse 5, gives us the clue to find out. Shimei was of the family of the house of Saul. Shimei was a very close relative of Saul. So while Saul was the king of Israel, Shimei had a gravy-trained life. After King Saul committed suicide, we're not sure if that was the case or not, and David became king, Shimei's gravy train came to an end. David had absolutely nothing to do with that. But Shimei blamed him for it anyway. Peoples, cushions uh, of, of, of his life compelled to blame someone for their hardships and trials, but they never blamed themselves. While Shimei was cursing David, David's loyal friend and servant uh, wanted to take Shimei's head off. David wouldn't allow it. 
David did not curse Shimei back. Simply turned and left alone. As David was walking away, Shimei followed on the edge, still cursing him, throwing rocks, dust, just minutes after David had spared his life. Now, the Cush in our lives never understand that we don't hate them. We're not out to get them. Uh, we have done them no wrong. David's example in Second Samuel 16, and in particular Psalm 7, teaches us how to deal with the cushions of our life. Be gracious and kind to the cushion in your life when you encounter them. I'm going to stop right now before I finish reading one more sentence. And I'm going to allow you to put in your mind's eye your cush. And just allow that person to be there for a second. And maybe this is a word for you this morning. What did David do to his cush? Well, this writer says, keep your mouth shut. <laughs> Walk away when they begin to badmouth you. If you can prevent something bad from happening to them, do so. But it doesn't mean you don't do anything. Tell the Lord on them, as David did in Psalm 7. And the situation was a, a, a cause that, that led to prayer. Then trust the Lord to defend you and then work it all out. By the way, the story does not end with David walking away and Shimei throwing rocks and dust at him. As you read the rest of the story, you see that Shimei gets his just punishment and David gets his just reward in the end. You see, some time passed. And I want to show you how this thing really does wind up with Shimei. And to do so, you have to go to 1 Kings chapter 2. We're almost done here this morning. So let's go one more. 1 Kings chapter 2. These are the final words of King David. He's old now, he's on his deathbed, and he's got a checklist of things. He's never forgotten about this guy, Shimei. Well, Dwight, you just said he prayed about it and gave it to the Lord. Yeah, he did. But remember what he said? He said, well, maybe I deserve this. Maybe, maybe the, the Lord will do something to him, I don't know. But now, years have gone by, David's been back on the throne, And he's about ready to die. So in chapter 2, we have the final words of King David to his son Solomon, who's about to become king. Just to get a feel for it, let's read verses 1 and 2. Then the days of David drew near that he should die, and he charged Solomon, his son, saying, I'm going the way of all the earth, so be strong. Therefore, be a man. Prove yourself to be a man. He said, now Solomon... There's a couple guys that you need to take care of. And um, he mentions several of them, but right before David dies, this is the last thing he says in verse 8. He says, And see, you have with you Shimei, the son of Gera, a Benjaminite from Bahiram. He cursed me out in a, in a malicious curse in the day that I went out of Jerusalem. But he came down to meet me at the Jordan, and I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put the sword to your death. You see, when David came back after Absalom was taken out, 
Then David's coming back. Shimei realized he's on the wrong side. <laughs> and he goes down to the Jordan and said, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. Okay, I'm not going to kill you. David kept his word. But the very last thing he says before he dies is, verse 9, Now therefore, Solomon, do not hold him guiltless. You're a wise man. You know what you ought to do, but bring his hair, gray hair down to the grave with blood. And the next thing we read is, so David died. David rested. You see, he gave it to the Lord and wrote about it during that period of time. Time to speak, time not to speak. Time to have heads roll, time's not to have heads roll. But you're going to be tested with all of it. I don't want to leave it on that note if we're going to talk about provocation. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 13. As we're getting to the Psalms game, what we're going to learn is that sorrows are shared by all of God's people, regardless of who they are, what periods of history we live in. But there's comfort given to the Psalms in how we deal with things. The test of your faith is going to be whether you take things into your own hands or you actually let go and have enough faith to say, I believe God is going to be my avenger. Uh, Vengeance is mine, isn't that what it says? I will repay, says the Lord. That's a test. And you can have your opportunities. And then the heart, really, of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 13, giving a definition of what love is, picks up with verse 4, love suffers long, it's kind, does not envy, Love does not parade itself, that's what Absalom did, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not speak its own. Notice what the next one is, is not provoked. I like that. It's one of the few places in the New Testament that it shows up. Love isn't provoked and it thinks no evil. We can apply that personally as we make our way through the book of Psalms. We need to... um, Pray for our cushions in our life. And you may have one this morning, and the Lord may be telling you how to deal with that. But in closing, we also are watching events unfold where we need to pray for the nation of Israel. Somebody want to give me a big amen on that as we watch this going on? I made this statement last week. This It's a debate over the land and who owns it. Just let me be perfectly clear before I let you go this morning. The land was given to Israel by God to Abraham. It was an everlasting covenant, never to be taken away. It's had different caretakers over time. Isaiah 11.11 says, when I bring them back the second time, that's the second time. The first time was 70 years in Babylon. The second time was on May 14th, 1948. 1,900 years ago, they left, but they're back. And the Lord says, when I bring them back this time, they'll never be out of the land again. You need to know that. This is an issue that the Lord will open up doors for you as people are wondering what's going on. The Bible has a very clear perspective on who it belongs to. These wars are foretold and they're prophesied, and um, we need to be on the the cutting edge, so to speak, uh, in sharing with our friends. Amen? Let's stand. We'll close in a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. Lord, as we get into the Psalms, uh, we thank you for David. His example, Lord, as 
He writes about how he dealt with Absalom, his son, and Lord, how he dealt with Shimei. Lord, both of these turn into psalms that tell us what he went through. Lord, if we learn nothing from the message this morning, for the Cushes or the Shimeis in our life, Lord, help, them, help us give them to you so that we don't lose any sleep or get bent out of shape or provoked by them. But Lord, just help us give them to you and just uh, have that tranquility and peace that David wrote about in the Psalms. So I pray for any this morning that are dealing with their Cushes or their Shimeis, and Lord, just set them free and uh, let your word have a place in their heart this day. In Jesus' name, amen.